What do Don McLean and the Fed minutes have in common? Well, Don McLean being awarded a star, right, on uh, Hollywood, is it Hollywood Boulevard? Uh, uh, actually, it's in his hometown. In his hometown. Yeah. For uh, his uh, contributions to music, and of course, uh, his one of the, the great legacy songs, of course, was American Pie. And that was not only the day that uh, the music died, but apparently yesterday with the Fed minutes, <laughs> the market died. Uh, fairly steep sell-off yesterday, uh, at, uh, really kind of after the Fed meeting minutes came out. Um, the real concern, we'll get into more detail this morning uh, with Michael Leibowitz to talk about this, to kind of dig into the numbers. But there was a lot of kind of you know, references to the fact that the Fed may need to actually start tapering sooner rather than later. And that led to about a 1% decline yesterday. Now, again, this, this all kind of lines up nicely here. We, we talked about yesterday we had triggered a money flow sell signal. Uh, money flows remain very positive here, but those started to reverse fairly sharply yesterday with that sell-off. Uh, this now puts the 50-day moving average very much in focus here. So, so again, there's not a lot of downside here before you're going to hit resistance, which has been a very important kind of key point for the markets really ever since last November. We currently are in the long, one of the longest stretches in 40 years, 40 years without a retest of the 200 day moving average. We wrote an article about this two weeks ago on uh, our technically speaking post talking about how long it's been since we've had a test of the 200 day moving average. It's a very long period of time. There's a very likely possibility we're gonna see that test at some point. Um, if we don't have a test of the 200-day moving average, which is about 10% lower than where we are currently, mind you, um, that would be only the 14th year since 1929 that that's happened. So again, um, test of 200-day moving averages happen almost every year. So that would certainly not be within the context of, of abnormality that we would have one this year. So. Uh, what will that really depend on? Well, a lot of that's going to actually depend on what the Fed does and says here over the course of the next couple of weeks, uh, particularly as they head into the Jackson Hole meeting. And that's what we'll talk about in more detail with Michael Ebowitz here. There is risk here that the Fed is really trapped. Um, a misreading of inflation, as an example, could be a big problem for them. If they say, well, we're kind of seeing transient inflation and they keep interest rates very low and monetary policy very high, then all of a sudden we're about to see rent inflation surge through the roof. There's a huge pressure on rents right now. In fact, we've seen a very sharp increase in rental rates here just over the last several weeks. That's going to translate into homeowners equivalent rent, which is about 30% of the CPI calculation. That also doesn't include the real inflation that consumers are seeing. And at a time where fiscal liquidity, all this money that was sent into the, the economy, 20% of GDP put into the economy last year by the government, by the Fed, both, that's now starting to reverse. That global liquidity is coming out of the markets. It is, is becoming a negative drag on, on economics. And we're about to see weaker economic growth going forward. And at a time where you've got higher cost of terms of cost of living, those are going to be an important impact on consumer spending, et cetera, which makes up about 70% of the GDP calculation. So there is a real risk to the Fed here over the course of the next couple of months. I taper because I think there's inflation, but at the same time, you've got weaker economic growth. So what do you do? How do you keep this balance between trying to support the markets and support the economy, but yet mon you know, kind of adhere to your monetary policy principles 
of target inflation and targeted unemployment. This is going to be a real challenge for the Fed. And this is where we've talked about before, the Fed runs the biggest risk of having a mistake and, and making a policy mistake. And this is where things potentially go very wrong for very exuberant markets. And, and again, that's what we have had and what we continue to have are markets that have been very resilient. This has simply been a market of a very, very high complacency. And as we've talked, we wrote an article last week talking about stability versus instability. Periods of very low stability where you have very, very you know, low volatility, not a lot of price movement up and down, kind of just a real steady rise higher. This is where investors get very complacent about their money. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, a little dip today, no problem, it'll go up tomorrow. That type of attitude, that is, that is a very high level of complacency. This is where we have very low volatility. Those periods lead to periods of very high volatility where all of a sudden things don't really work out so well for investors. So again, as always is the case, pay attention to what's going on here. We do have a sell signal now on the S&P. And this, again, doesn't mean that you're going to have a big decline in markets. I'm not saying that at all, but it is something that suggests there is a risk here. And again, as we're talking about slowing economic data, really kind of across the board, economic projections are dropping. This is going to lead to lower earnings estimates. So we're going to start seeing there's some very earnings estimates going into next year are very exuberant. We're going to start to see those tailored back, which is going to make valuations even higher on a forward basis. Um, and again, we've never really had a big correction in markets in terms of valuation reversion. So things are just really extended, really stretched, and, and, and grossly kind of, of out of context of normality. So this is all the kind of the prime setup here for a, for a contraction at some point in markets that is going to be larger than what most people think. And again, 10% correction, well within the context of normality, happens all the time. But because we haven't had a 10% correction in such a long period of time, it's going to feel a whole lot worse than it actually is. And that's not even to mention that eventually we will ultimately have a bear market at some point, whether that's next year, year after, 10 years from now, wherever it occurs, that is gonna be something that investors are gonna have a much harder time dealing with, particularly um, after such a long period of complacency in market. So just something to really kind of pay attention to. A couple other headlines here as we kind of get into today, and then we're gonna go over to Michael Leibowitz here after the break. Um, keep a watch on what's happening with this uh, infrastructure bill and this $3.5 trillion um, American Rescue Plan that's trying to get passed through. That potentially is going to weigh on markets as well because, again, everybody's kind of hoping for more stimulus, more input in the economy. That's getting all hung up. As we suggested, there's a lot of moderate Democrats that have to go home. They're facing re-election in 2022. And they're starting to balk at all of this spending that's going on because, again, there's a there's there's imagine this: a lot of people out there are really worried about the amount of debt, Democrat and Republican alike. So again, another three and a half trillion on top of 1.2 trillion on top of the five trillion we added to the debt last year. Again, when you're starting to cross that 30 trillion dollar debt economy, that's even getting the attention. Of, of Democrats as well as conservative Republicans. And this is gonna potentially be a challenge here, but markets have been hoping that we're gonna get a lot more infrastructure spending, a lot more uh, kind of social spending, and that's gonna really help Americans and, and keep markets liquidified. That is not necessarily the case. So that's really one of the bigger challenges also coming up here to pay attention to. But when we come back from the break, 
I'm your host, Lance Roberts. We'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk about the Fed minutes. We'll talk about Bullard and his worry that we may, he may, you know, the Fed might just misgauge what's actually happening with inflation. All that coming up. Don't go away. Michael Leibowitz joining me um, to talk a little bit about, well, the Fed minutes yesterday. Now, again, this wasn't a meeting, right? So, um, you know, we had the meeting a couple of weeks ago. We listened to Powell talk, uh, you know, about, you know, monetary policy, et cetera, after the meeting, had his presser. Now, these are the minutes that is what supposedly happened in the meeting. But it's not really what happened in the meeting, right? They have a whole lot of different conversations there, and they have a kind of a standard set of minutes that get republished after every meeting with small little tweaks here and there. But what was interesting in these minutes, and it took the markets a little bit of time to digest this yesterday, is that there were some comments in those meetings which suggest that they may be closer to thinking about, thinking about, possibly thinking about tapering than what they were thinking about, thinking about tapering before. Right, Mike? They're thinking about thinking about a lot of different things, Lance, <laughs> and they made that very clear in a minute. Let me uh, let me pull this up on my phone so I can read it verbatim. What there were three statements in the in the minutes yesterday. And remember, these were all from the July. I think it was the 28th, 29th meeting. So three weeks ago. Fed. Uh, I'm sorry. Most judge tapering this year could be appropriate. Several others saw next year as more appropriate on taper. A few others saw possibility no taper for some time. The Fed is basically saying, you know, they're laying out all three and saying, okay, market, go ahead and figure out which one it is, right? Yeah, if you, you know, and then if you go back and read those minutes again, just like you just did, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> right. It, it's like when my wife asked me something and I can't come up with the right decision. Right. Like it's, you're doomed for failure to try to figure out what the Fed is thinking about thinking about. Exactly. Um, but you know, the problem is you got all these feds, you have all these fed speakers and Bullard has been very vocal. So Bullard out of headlines and he wants to taper yesterday mm -hmm. and he wants to be done tapering early next year. And he wants the feds balance sheet to go to zero. Right. Right. That's not going to happen. The problem is there's really no doves to so-called doves to really counteract what he's been saying. You know, I, I think a lot of them are scared of inflation. They see employment getting back to normal relatively quickly, and they have some of that same sentiment. They're just scared that they're walking right into a trap. Now, the meeting was late July. Mm -hmm. Since late July, we had another outstanding unemployment report, yet we've had a pretty bad retail sales report and some other economic data that's been weak, right? So the Fed is looking at high inflation, normalizing employment. That's what they want. That's what they've told us they want. That's what they said will kick off taper. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, the economy, and as we expected and a lot of people expected, is really starting to slow. There's no stimulus. The stimulus, I'm sorry, the stimulus is going away quickly. Mm -hmm. Pent-up demand has been satisfied for the most part now now people don't have to spend because they bought their deck three months ago they bought a car six months ago they bought some of these big ticket items mm -hmm. a long time ago they don't need to spend what they may have you know they may have waited to spend this year or next year that that demand is gone now 
And this is a global story. This isn't just the U.S. And we're, you know, both a big exporter and big importer. So what happens in all these other countries affects us. And then you have the Delta variant. And it's affecting other countries a lot more than us. us. But, you know, we're seeing more mass mandates. There's probably some trepidation in people to do certain things, to spend money in various ways. So the Fed has these kind of uh, uh, slowing economic backdrop a new Delta variant, and um, at the same time, they're meeting their goals. So they're kind of trapped here. And I think what's gone on for the last couple of days is the market may be kind of thinking about, is the Fed walking right into a trap? Are they going to start tapering at exactly the wrong time? Right, right. Just as the economy's slowing, just as the math tells us it would, the Fed is saying, okay, we're done stimulating the markets. Well, and this is something that we've said before is that, uh, you know, what the Fed should have done is, you know, did they do the right thing in March of 2020? We can argue that, yeah, they came in, they they stopped the market from correcting, but the market really needed to have a bigger mean reverting correction, get valuation. There's a lot of froth in the markets back in February of 2020. Um, and instead of allowing the markets to correct and actually go through a recessionary bear market, you know, they came in, they bailed it out. Okay, fine. Um, we can argue the benefits or, or detractions from that misallocation of capital, et cetera. But they did what they did. But instead of, you know, as soon as the market started going again and started getting back to normal activity, they should have then began to start, you know, reducing from 120 to 100 billion to 80 billion and started reducing sooner. Um, and allow all that liquidity that was coming in from the government stimulus, you know, direct checks to households, unemployment benefits, et cetera, to kind of pick up the slack of supporting the economy. But now, to your point, they now have themselves in a trap. They didn't do that. They've been liquefying the markets over the last 12 months. They've got, a, you know, a huge asset bubble now built up in markets, in the housing market in particular, because we've seen what's been going on with housing prices. And you're right, to, to a point, they're trapped because – you're now getting, you know, what are you going to do? You need to taper. If you're going to stay true to your two mandates, which is full employment and, and maintaining inflation, and inflation's about to show up in a real ugly way because uh, rents are rising sharply. So the homeowner's equivalent rent portion of CPI is about to have a big surge. That's got to worry the Fed. Um, food prices, gas prices, I know we don't count those in inflation, but those are impacting consumers. <laughs> and, you know, those are going up. So the the problem now becomes for the Fed is was what do you do? Do you stay true to your mandates or do you keep supplying liquidity to the financial markets, which only benefits about 10 percent of the economy? Right. And Lance, they mentioned that yesterday for the first time in a long time that assets were asset valuations were elevated. That was the exact quote. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned in particular the S&P price to earnings was high. They mentioned credit spreads were way too low and they mentioned housing. And they, they, they actually drew the link, too, between they kind of talk about a little bit about why they do QE, mm -hmm. and they're getting a little bit closer to why they do QE. It's to boost asset prices. It's, not, it's to boost asset confidences and gain confidence. Right. So the top, you know, like you said, 10%, and I would argue it's less than that because a lot of those 10%, that's not really spending money. Right. That's more retirement money or, you know, kind of yeah. savings money. Yep. So... By, by making Bill Gates and other wealthy, very wealthy people happy, that's great, but it doesn't result in a better economy. Right. 
Well, and again, you know, that's, you know, that was exactly what Ben Bernanke said back in 2010, you know, after QE1 was, we had gone through the initial quantitative easing coming out of the financial crisis. Um, quantitative easing rolled off. The, mar the market immediately sold off down 20% back in 2010. And, um, and Ben Bernanke at Jackson Hole came out and says, look, hey, you know, we've got our two mandates, but, you know, we do QE to lift asset prices to boost consumer confidence, which will hopefully come through to a stronger economy. The problem is, is that's never actually worked. Um, we've been running now at a 2%-ish economy over the course of the last decade, even with $48 trillion worth of liquidity crammed into the markets between the government and the Fed. And you're not getting stronger rates of economic growth. You're getting great boost to asset prices. And look, you know, our clients are invested in the markets. We're invested in the markets. It's great for us, right? It's just not really helping the other 90% of America that has very little money invested in the financial markets. And they're going into debt every month. We just saw a huge spike in consumer credit because individuals are having to go back to spending on credit cards because all the benefits are running out. They're having to go back to credit cards to make ends meet. And now the cost of living is even higher. So they're having to drive into debt even more because their wages don't cover the cost of living. Right, right. So, right. The, and the question really is, does it really boost confidence? I mean, it boosts, it makes you feel better when your account's bigger. Don't get me wrong. But does mm -hmm. it really say, does, when you look at your account and it's, you know, up as much as it is over the last year, do you really say, I'm going to go buy that new boat or I'm going to buy that second home? You know, I'm sure some people do, but, you know, I think a lot of people, it's another source of savings and they, it doesn't, it, you know, it, in, in March of 2020, it probably did boost some confidence when people saw the headlines on the paper that market recovers, everything's going to be okay because the market's telling them that. And that probably did boost some sure. broad level of confidence. But now we're a year and a half later and the Fed's still doing this. And the market is, is now maybe actually not creating confidence because everyone's scared. Mm. A lot of people know it's overvalued. Everyone just thinks they can sell it to the next sucker, right? <laughs> they can buy it way too expensive, but sell it even way, way too, too expensive. Right. Right. But, just but, like but, what you're seeing in the housing market. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to your point, though, it, you know, the the initial, you know, where the Fed, in my opinion, this is where the Fed has been making kind of repeated mistakes, you know, ever since the financial crisis is, yeah, look, there is a need for you. I, I'm not going to argue the need for the Fed to intervene into markets through quantitative easing there there are times that that is certainly beneficial the financial crisis was a really good example of that i mean credit markets were broken we had a, we had a literal credit freeze credit is the lifeblood of the economy it needed to get back on its feet now did we need to bail out banks no the banks should have been allowed to fail and that would have that would have spread out our banking system instead of having five banks control the entire banking system we would have had a much broader much equally based banking system and could have gotten rid of a lot of the manipulations that occur because of these five major banks different story different day we'll get into that but at some point, as soon as the things start operating again, it's, it's kind of like putting gasoline directly into your carburetor to get the the car the, the engine to start, right? You know, but as soon as it starts, you stop doing that <laughs> and you let the engine run on its own. But when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit more about this and, you know, where the Fed is now. And Bullard made a really interesting comment yesterday 
And I want to go back to this inflation idea because he said, he said, we could be getting ready to make a mistake on inflation. And we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. What is going on with inflation and how could the Fed get trapped here? Be right back with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Yesterday, market sold off. Um, you know, market's kind of holding up during the day. No big deal. Very quiet, holding above the 20-day moving average. Minutes come out. Really kind of no big deal. And then somebody actually read the minutes. Um, and at about 2.30, uh, the market began to sell off. And we finished the day down 1%. Broke through the 20-day moving average. Looking as, we're, as if we're going to try to test the 50-day moving average today. Why is that important is because that has been kind of the line in the sand, really, ever since November. Um, we had two big corrections last August and, uh, and September going into the winter. And that was the last time we had really a 5% correction. And since then, we haven't had one. We've got one of the longer stretches in history without a 5% correction. We have the longest stretch without a test of the 200-day moving average in the last 40 years. And so, again, it's been very complacent up to this point. And, you know, this test of the 50-day moving average has been the buy-the-dip opportunity. So here's the big question. Do you buy this dip, right? That's going to be the big question. Is this test of the 50-day moving average, is, is the selling going to be over today and we're back off to new highs? Or is this the time? that we potentially break the 50-day moving average and look to test the 200-day moving average, which is roughly about 8% lower. The, uh, from peak to trough at the 200-day moving average, that'll be about a 10, 10.5% decline, well within the context of any normal year. Um, if we finish 2021 without a test of the 200-day moving average, it will only be the 14th time that we've gone a full year since 1929 without a test of the 200-day moving average. So my point is, is it happens all the time. Not outside the realm of possibility that we'll test the 200-day moving average this year. I'd suggest that that would indeed be the case. That's going to be about a 10% decline, also well within the norms of what happens in any given year. It's going to feel terrible. Because we've had such low volatility in this market, we haven't had a big correction in such a long time of 10% that it's going to feel like March 2020 all over again and that you're losing all your money. It, you, it's not, <laughs> but, but that's the way it's going to feel like um, when it occurs. But again, what is going to cause that is going to be this debate over tapering because that's been the whole story. Why are valuations high? Well, because the Fed's got interest rates at zero and they're doing $120 billion a month. So as long as there's $120 billion a month in, in QE, I don't want to miss out. So valuations don't matter, but they do matter ultimately because it's a function of what companies can actually earn and markets are well-priced above what companies can actually earn at this point in history. So again, I mean, it's just one of those things to pay attention to. So this inflation debate um, is going to be the big key here. Mike, your thoughts? That, what you just said is so important to, I think, restate. Markets are so far above what's a fair valuation. And the reason they're so far above a fair valuation is because of the Fed, both their asset purchases and as well as what they're doing with interest rates. Right. So 
I know there's probably a few people out there listening and saying all they do is talk about the Fed, the Fed this, <laughs> the Fed that. That's all they they write so much about the Fed. They the Fed is just encompassing. And the problem is that the re that we can't look at valuations anymore. We look mm-hmm. at cheap companies. We were talking about about Viacom yesterday. It's a cheap company. The problem is it's not a favored stock under the Fed. So even though there's value there, it's difficult to buy it. Right. On the other hand, we look at some very expensive companies that are the beneficiaries of what the Fed's doing. So our investment thesis today versus the way we would have done things 10 years ago, 20 years ago, has changed. And it has to change because the Fed is is creating those valuation gaps where valuations are today versus what's normal based on the economic environment. And until the Fed gets out of the way, understanding what the Fed may or may not do, trying to answer that multiple choice question of will they taper tomorrow, next year or in 2028 is is what matters to the market. It's what keeps valuations at those levels. And if we get valuations back down to normal levels, maybe we can do our jobs and be true stop stock pickers based on <laughs> earnings based on revenues based on company prospects yeah but, but I, won't, further, I won't hold my breath <laughs> no but the further you get from reality the more you have to look at those other forces not 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 why you buy a mm-hmm. company but who's driving the valuation of that company and that's the fed and you know i, I don't think i don't i don't like spending as much time on the fed i don't think it's an appropriate use of of you know what we really should be doing but we don't have a choice right that's what the fed's doing so we have to listen to these fed speeches we have to uh pay attention to adjectives to verbs to what they're saying fed grammar matters right brent right. <laughs> so well and it, like this it's it's you know and again i you know it's an important point and and again you know when the mantra of the market and i don't know how many we've written some articles disputing this but if you go look at any story on valuations, even guys like Jeremy Siegel uh, from Wharton University, value, low va- high valuations are justified by low interest rates. So by the Fed keeping interest rates at zero, we can overpay for stocks because of the valuation. Now, there's really no period in history that supports that case. Whenever in history you've had high valuations and low interest rates, you pretty much were at the peak of a market like 1929, um, and things didn't turn out so well for investors. But these are the mantras we get into to to rationalize why we're overpaying for things. So it's like, oh well, interest rates are low, so we can overpay for stuff. Uh, you know, it, that doesn't really hold water. Just because interest rates are low doesn't mean you overpay for a house because you know if you overpay for the house, you're not going to make money on it. And that's kind of the same case with stocks. But this is how we do things. You know, the risk for the Fed, though, and again, they've they've fallen into this trap of keeping monetary accommodation too, for too long. Um, we saw this back in 2013, 2014, 2015. Markets were doing fine. The economy was doing fine. They had plenty of opportunity to start tailoring off some of that accommodation, raising rates, uh, starting to normalize things. Uh, they waited too long. 
the economy was already starting to show some signs of weakness. We were in the middle of a trade war with China under the Trump administration, which was impacting trade. Then they decide to start trying to raise rates. And of course, it was too late at that point. And that small little advance triggered a fairly sharp sell-off. And the Fed had to immediately pivot, drop rates back to zero, and start initially doing QE through what we called repo back then. You and I were talking about this in 2019. Um, and then the wheels came off the cart with the inverted yield curve in 2020, which led us to the QE we're doing now. But this is this is the the thing is that they stay they they keep these policies in place for far too long rather than letting the forces of the economy that are growing pick up some of the slack. Now, if they had done that, you know the the market wouldn't be trading at 4,400; it'd be around 2,000. Right. But it would be a healthier market. Valuations would be much better aligned and the Fed would have a, a much more normal monetary policy stance at this point, which give them a lot of flexibility. Um, if we do have a recession or a downturn, they'd have a lot more flexibility to, to impact markets. But now they've got themselves in a trap. And here's the, the as we said before the break, the risk for the Fed is now inflation. You know, rent inflation is going up. Bullard says, and I think he's right, that. You know, if the Fed misreads inflation, if they keep thinking it's transitory and it's not, they've got a real problem. And, and, you know, the math says it's transitory. All the things we've talked about with the economy and stimulus mm -hmm. and all that. The problem is there's a psychological component to inflation. And, you know, the question is, should you go out and buy a used car right now? They're expensive. And one answer is no, just wait. Prices will come down. The other answer is, what if they go up? Right. I'm going to buy that car today. <laughs> right. And that's that's the problem. And no one can forecast that. Right. You can't forecast changes in psychology, especially around prices. And people have seen prices rise sharply and especially on the things they need the most, food and energy mm -hmm. and, and a lot of other things. A lot of, you know, like lumber went through the roof. There's a lot that's come back down, but there's a lot of things whose prices are much higher. And the question is not, should I go out and buy a used car, but should I buy an extra roll of toilet paper? Should I buy some extra meat and freeze it? And when consumers start getting into that hoarding, that, that extra storage, mm -hmm. they're creating more demand for today than there normally would be. And, you know, supply and demand right. is and, and, driving and, prices. And supply, the supply lines are still screwed up. Right. Well, I mean, and look, they're still a way off from being normal. Exactly. And look, and inflation and deflation are the same thing. And you're absolutely right. And, the, and people do forget about the psychological impact of these things is that when prices are going up and, you know, individuals make the assumption that prices are just going to keep going up forever. So they better buy stuff now, which keeps the inflation running. Same thing happens in deflation when prices are declining. Everybody stops buying. Because they keep thinking prices are going to lower, which makes prices go lower. So, you know, just look at the stock market for evidence <laughs> of that. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we always tend to forget about the psychological component. You know, we look at the math of stuff, right? But I think the Fed does do a very poor job of analyzing the psychology of what happens behind these things. And then, again, taking some preemptive action to try to stave off some of that psychology. You know, uh, some action earlier to keep markets from getting grossly overvalued again would have been a wise move. It certainly wouldn't have been as fun in the market, but it would have certainly provided a healthier market for the economy overall. Be right back with Michael Leibowitz. Get ready to wrap up the show. Don't go away.
real quick here, a couple of interesting uh, kind of headlines. Hood, Robinhood, um, announced earnings yesterday. <laughs> Stock is going to be down fairly sharply today, not because of the markets, but because almost the bulk of their entire revenue came from trading Dogecoin. <laughs> not stocks, which is what they do, right? I don't not know even what Bitcoin. I know I don't even know what happened. Yeah, the, but uh, you know I don't know what happened to their earnings. But what a disaster uh, for people that bought that IPO. I mean, it's uh, you thought you were buying a stock trading company, you found out you were buying a Bitcoin trading company. Not surprising because a lot of users of Robinhood are buying the latest and greatest investment idea, the right. newest fad, and Dogecoin was a hot item. You know, the question is, you know, especially in a market sell-off, and I'm not talking about a 50% sell-off, but if the market starts going nowhere or starts declining, say we're 10, 15% yeah. lower at the end of the year, I think a lot of Robin Hood's client base goes away. It's not fun anymore. Well, you know, it's right? interesting. And, no, it's interesting you said that. There's a chart out this morning, and, you know, back in the second quarter, which is what we're talking about here in terms of their earnings, that was when Dogecoin was on fire, right? I mean, you know, it was this, it was going up 100% a day, those type of things, right? Um, Dogecoin millionaires everywhere. You got, you got Elon Musk tweeting about Dogecoin. So that makes sense at that point. Um, good chart out this morning, uh, I believe from the Wall Street Journal, if I'm not mistaken, um, but showing meme stocks, right? So these are the AMCs, the GameStops, uh, you know, these type of stocks that, that were primarily traded on Wall Street Reddit bets and, and primarily on Robinhood. Those meme stocks, the interest, it was showing the interest in these stocks. And it has fallen sharply over the last several months. And it makes sense because these stocks haven't gone anywhere, right? You know, instead of making 40 or 50 or 60% a day on these stocks, these stocks are doing like normal things like up 1%, down 2%, you know, that type right. of thing. So no, not nearly as fun because I'm not able to, to, you know, generate these massive returns overnight. And for a lot of these Robinhood traders, they were doing it with options. And the problem with options, options work great when you have high volatility, right? You have big spikes in markets. That's when options do great. When, when asset prices really just kind of churn around and do nothing, Options don't really work all that well, and you wind up losing your capital very quickly. And the problem with options, they go to zero. So, right. you know, again, I, I think, and again, I think this is, I think this bodes poorly for Robinhood in the third quarter earnings report. If we don't start to see those meme stocks and those interesting meme stocks pick up, their third quarter could be an absolute nightmare for them. Right, right. And my internal indicator, my son, who's 17. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard him mention a stock in over a month. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now that I think about it, because I get the emails of his confirmations, mm -hmm. I haven't seen a confirmation email in probably a month, at least a month. So he's lost interest. He's moving. He had his fantasy football draft, so he's moving on to bigger and better things. But I think that's true for, you know, unfortunately for Robinhood, a large percentage of their their investors and where they make money. Because, look, at the end of the day, bull markets are easy mm -hmm. and they're fun, right? It's, you know, when you got to when when markets are up 80 percent of the time, it's pretty easy to make money, especially if you don't care about any risk or downside. And it's pretty easy to be the hero and pick stocks. Right. It it, it seems easy to buy AMC, mm -hmm. but AMC is worth about five or six times what it was worth before covid. Right. And people aren't going to movies now. So. If you can disassociate logic from with what's going on, th this bull market has probably been the most fun 
you know, for, for my son, it's been the most fun because he doesn't apply that valuation logic. He can just look at what's hot. It would be like sports gambling. Imagine well, no, if you could hit about, 90%. Right. That's what I was about to say, though. That's that's really what all this was. If you look at where Robinhood really took off, it was when we shut down sports gambling. And right. all these guys, you know, transitioned from uh, uh, Dave Portnoy, uh, Barstool Sports, right? Uh, right. started running his YouTube channel and, and his Twitter feed on trading stocks rather than sports betting. So now that all that's opened back up, again, fantasy football leagues, right? You've, you've got fantasy football this year. You didn't have it last year because of COVID. You know, all those guys are like, you know, well, stocks were fun for a while, and now they're not moving anywhere. So I'm going to go back to betting on what I'm normally good at betting on. And I think we are seeing a lot of that switch, and that doesn't bode well for Robinhood, particularly because, again, a lot of their users were looking for big, you know, big, quick hits. You know, I want to double my money overnight. And look, I was getting emails from people asking, like, what can I invest in where I can double my money overnight? It's like nothing. <laughs> you know? but, right. but that's but that's what because of all this liquidity. And again, this goes back also. Let's not forget. Let's go back to the fact we were sending fourteen hundred dollar checks to households. We were given, you know, billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to people that usually gambled with it and so they turned to the stock market with it and that's now over so but what happens in sports right take the cowboys giving three and if you win you double your money mm -hmm. that that's that's the the yardstick right it, it's kind of all or none that's the way sports gambling works right and that's right? the way it works and that's the way it works in the options market too which is where we saw a lot of this trading going on right Right. And a lot of that options trading affects the has a huge effect on the underlying stock because there's you just don't buy an option. You buy it from someone right. and whoever that someone in it is usually Wall Street and Wall Street isn't just taking the other side of your bet. They're hedging the other side of that bet. They don't want the other side of your bet. Right. They don't want to bet. They just want to take they just want to make a, they want the vig. a skinny line. A skinny line of profits. <laughs> exactly. right? They want the vig. Regardless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They want the vig, just like Las Vegas. Yeah. So so all those option buyings had a huge effect on the underlying stock and drove the mania. But if this mania, if the air's coming out of if the air's coming out of this mania, out of this bubble, it's gonna change a lot of uh, a lot of behaviors of the investors that were supporting not just Robinhood, but other other companies like Tesla, like AMC, mm -hmm. these meme stocks, and and even the broader market. So right. it's a change. You know, the, the Fed here, and this is why, again, the Fed's so important. They've blown up this bubble, and it's supporting these meme stocks. It's supporting these these new investors. And when the Fed's signaling that they want to start changing things, doing things differently, everyone is saying, what? We like the, we like mm -hmm. the bull market. It was fun. Why can't we do this forever? <laughs> and the Fed's saying we can't do it forever. We may change it this week or next month or or six years from now, but but something's different today than it was yesterday with the Fed. And they're telling you that. They're, they can't be more obvious that something's going to change. They're not telling you when or how or what, mm -hmm. but I think they've made it very clear that it's not going to be the same going forward as it was in the past. Yeah, and again, I think this is, uh, this is the lesson that you know investors have to learn over and over again. And eventually we'll have a bear market that will really impact, you know, individuals and investors in a way that a bear market normally works and you know this is going to change that dynamic you know we have we've taught an entire generation and look apps like Robinhood are great i don't have any problem with it except for the fact that 
it teaches people to gamble, not to invest. And but again, that's also been a function of the Federal Reserve and the stuff that they've done to the markets. And as you said earlier in the show, you know, we used to invest on a fundamental basis. We can't anymore. We have to primarily be technical, watch money flows, watch the 50 day moving averages because fundamentals don't matter right now. Um, right. Do fundamentals matter? Absolutely. In the long run, they're going to matter a lot. But if you buy purely fundamental stocks, you're going to vastly underperform markets. And then what happens is markets are running away from you. You feel like you've got to play catch up. So you take on even more risk to try to, try to play catch up with the markets. And eventually this just works out badly for everybody. But those are the lessons that we have to be taught over and over and over again. And this is why having a sell discipline, having a management discipline, managing risk, doing the things that you and I talk about here on the show all the time are so important because it can help navigate those drawdowns when they occur to help minimize some of that damage, um, which will eventually happen. We're going to have a test of the 200-day moving average. We're going to have a test of the 50-day. We're going to have a bigger correction at some point. We just don't know when, and nobody does, and nobody knows what's going to cause it. So we have to carry the umbrella in case it rains. You know, that's just and that's just part of portfolio management over time. It's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not buying AMC. But it works long term to protect your wealth and help you grow money. But look, if you have questions or comments, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Since your questions, comments, emails, get our latest blog post. Michael has his second article out right now on Bob Farrell's 10 rules on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, sign up for our daily commentary. We'll email you our daily commentary every day, tell you what's going on in the markets. On the website now, simply just click the daily commentary and subscribe for free email every morning to your inbox. See you tomorrow on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for The Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.